From FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds, this is Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. On today's program, how can the world go about kicking its addiction to fossil fuels? Later on in the program, we'll visit a new kind of solar power plant that hopes to be a game changer for renewable energy. But first, if you've been paying much attention to the climate crisis, you've probably heard plenty of people talking about one little number. People just talk about two degrees. Two degrees. Two degrees. Two degrees. Two degrees. Two degrees Celsius. Two degrees Celsius. That's a number that was at the center of the Paris climate negotiations in 2015. It's a threshold for global warming. Beyond that point, we're really in trouble. Plenty of scientists and policymakers are pushing to limit warming to just 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Already, we've warmed the planet about one degree, primarily by burning fossil fuels to heat our homes, drive our cars, and so on. The gist of these little numbers is that the world gets considerably more dangerous with even small-sounding increases in the average global temperature. So think about some of the consequences here. Some small island states in the Pacific, they're so low-lying that they could be submerged beneath rising seas at even two or one and a half degrees of warming. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is this UN group that makes sense of the world's climate science, they came out with a report saying that in order to meet these targets, the world needs to become essentially carbon neutral by 2050. That would require a massive shift, a near total abandonment of fossil fuels, and fast. What can be done to change public policy and to catch up with what's been called the sinister math of the climate crisis? The planet, after all, doesn't adhere to our political calendars. It operates on the laws of physics. And all of that carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere, well, it adds up. One of the smartest people thinking about all this, as well as the role of technology in addressing climate change, is Dan Schrag. He's the director of the Harvard Center for the Environment, and I caught up with Dan on Harvard's campus last fall. I started out by asking him about his own personal and professional background, how he made a shift from work as a geologist into energy policy. What would typically happen is I'd give a talk about climate change from a sort of paleoclimate perspective, and then the last three minutes would be about what to do about it. And that felt very unsatisfying. And so gradually, I started to think more and more about the what to do about it part. And it eventually flipped so that, you know, the first 10 minutes was about climate and the rest of the talk was actually about what to do about it. So I started to teach intentionally courses about how to solve the climate problem through energy technology as a way for me to think about it and learn about it more. And so that was for me a conscious transition probably started about 15 years ago. So you posed a really good question there. Like, what do we do about it? How, how would you go about answering that question? Um, well, so one of the sobering things that I think I've learned is just how difficult it is to change the energy system. So, you know, we've probably already committed, for example, to melt the entire Greenland ice sheet. It's already committed to be gone. It's just a question of how fast. Right? We don't know whether it's over 2,000 years, over 500 years, over 200 years, hopefully not. Right. But the processes that are ultimately going to get rid of it all are already in place. You know, That's why, to me, I understand the policy discussions around two degrees or one and a half degrees, but that's just fantasy, right? I mean, the Earth system has a huge amount of inertia that we're unlikely to affect very much. Um, we will affect it by adding CO2 to the atmosphere, but we're not going to, you know, this is not a problem we can fix in a decade or two. 
So, I mean, explain that a little bit more for me. Um, like, help me understand, you know, the energy system in particular is so slow to change. And knowing what you know about it, uh, what do you think is the best approach? Because I know you're, you're not saying that the status quo is okay and that things shouldn't change. Um, you know, but how, where does that leave you? How do we actually go about this? So absolutely, no, we, we need to change the energy system and we need to accelerate that change. But um, I worry that the, all the rhetoric about one and a half degrees or two degrees. Which are, of course, these international targets to limit warming to a certain threshold. That's right. Um, uh, I worry that they're ultimately going to create disillusionment and mistrust that basically we're going to pass those thresholds and people are going to say, well, I guess we, th we failed, we'll throw up our hands. And, mm -hmm. Or we're not going to believe the experts because they told us that it would be the end of the world if we crossed two degrees. Mm -hmm. And guess what? The world's still here. The world will be fine. How ecosystems and how humans do is a different question. So right now, if you look at countries that are trying to get to more renewable energy, specifically wind and solar, Ireland is a nice example. And the reason is it's not piggybacking off of other countries nearby. Ireland is an island, and so it really is mostly disconnected from the rest of the world, and they're about 30% wind. Um, the UK is about 18% wind, which is great and growing, but Ireland is kind of a world leader. So you ask, how long would it take for the US to get to 30% wind and solar? Well, what that means just because of nighttime and because of the intermittency of wind and the intermittency of solar, that would require building something like 600 gigawatts of new wind and solar capacity for the U.S. That would be to get to 30% of our electricity from wind and solar. And what does that translate to in terms of you know the amount of time or money that would be involved? So when I talk about 600 gigawatts of new capacity... Can you accelerate that? I hope so. But the idea that you can accelerate that to do it all in 10 years, and that's, that's only 30%. That's not 100%, right? 100% um, is a totally different challenge because the truth is we don't really know how to get to 100% renewable. Could it be batteries that get cheaper and cheaper? I would say I think that's unlikely, but it's possible. There's some technical reasons why batteries have trouble, particularly at the seasonal timescales, just because of the costs involved. Um, could it be carbon capture and storage applied to natural gas? Maybe. That's kind of an a interim solution. That's not maybe a long-term solution, but that's an interesting one. Could it be hydrogen made from renewable energy that is used to fill in the gaps when, when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining? Maybe. That looks very expensive right now. Could it be advanced nuclear power? Again, maybe. Not Looks kind of expensive and difficult right today. So the point is, a lot of these questions about how to get to these really low carbon emission economies, we don't even know how to do it. So yes, there are these long time scales. And the fact is the mountain looks enormous and almost impossible to climb. But you know, the way you climb it is you put one foot in front of the other. So, I mean, what can we do about this right now in terms of our efforts to start tackling this problem? So right now, in many places in the world, including in many parts of the U.S., solar and wind are cheaper than anything else, including natural gas. Now, they're not as flexible as natural gas. But the point is, we're right now something like 6% penetration of wind and solar into our total electric grid. 
So to me, the obvious first goal is since wind and solar are cheap, let's get the U.S. economy to 30%. Let's all agree that before you get to 100%, you have to go through 30%. That is Herculean. Let's do that first. And that's very straightforward. We have the technology. You know, this is not radical new technology. We know what we have to do, right? Just to give you a perspective, this requires building five or 600 gigawatts of solar and wind in the U.S. The whole world produced 106 gigawatts of solar PV panels last year. So for just for the U.S., five or 600 gigawatts is a very big number. Could we get there? I hope so. We should try. And by the way, we want to do it in such a way that the rest of the world tries with us. So this can't just be the U.S. doing it. We need Europe to do it. We need Asia to do it, and eventually Africa as well. And in doing so, we need to do it so that the price of wind and solar continue to come down, of all of the systems that go with it, so that it's easier and easier for countries to say, you know, countries like Thailand or Vietnam or Indonesia, where they have rapidly growing economies, we want them to say, oh, Instead of building a coal plant, I'm going to build a wind farm because it's so much cheaper. Um, so the question is, how can the U.S. and China and Europe actually accelerate the deployment of this, not just in their own countries, but around the world? I think there are interesting opportunities for the World Bank. What China is doing with the Belt and Road Initiative is really interesting and potentially a very powerful lever. And thinking about how do you help countries finance and put incentives in place to finance green technology. But ultimately, cost matters. So, you know, you're saying that even though environmentalists and activists are sounding the alarm bells and have been for a, a long time now, um, that it's, it's really hard to change these entrenched systems which rely on fossil fuels. Um, there's a cartoon that I like to show when I give talks to public audiences about this, which is an old cartoon from Vanity Fair from 1861. And it shows a ball, a grand ball given by the whales. And the whales are all dressed up in tuxedos and gowns, sipping champagne. And they're toasting to the discovery of oil in Pennsylvania, which was discovered that year in Pennsylvania. It's a brilliant cartoon. Um, and of course, it's not true, not just because the whales didn't dress up. They hate champagne, obviously. They hate champagne, right. But separate from that, the reason it's a lie is because 20th century ships powered by petroleum, were very bad for the whales. They probably killed many more whales than the 19th century on, on whaling ships. So the discovery of oil was probably not good for whales, but it is true that we stopped hunting whales, at least in the U.S., for their blubber, for their oil, because of the discovery of oil. I think there's a lesson there, and it's a sobering one. We didn't stop killing whales in Nantucket, here in Massachusetts, because we cared about the whales. We stopped whaling because we found a technology that was better. And I do think there's an important role for policy, carbon taxes, incentives for new technologies, but ultimately, new technology has to be better, it has to win. The reason solar and wind got cheap was not because of research and development, it was because of deployment. When people started deploying more and more solar panels, the price of solar panels dropped. And the same with offshore wind and the same with onshore wind. So, and, and we're beginning to see the same thing with batteries. I hope we see the same thing with EVs, with electric vehicles. So, for example, if we said we want to subsidize a million electric vehicles a year for the next four years, 
That's a million vehicles at a tax credit of $10,000 per vehicle. That would be $10 billion a year. It's a lot of money, but it's not that much money in the whole federal budget. You could do that over four years. And what it would actually spur is enormous new construction of factories across the U.S., you know, imagine if you really saw the car companies investing heavily in production capability to build EVs. That's what's going to bring the cost down. Every new factory they build, the cost gets a little bit lower. And the goal should be, I think, in 10 years' time to have price parity between an electric vehicle and an internal combustion engine vehicle. And then, ultimately, the market has to figure that out. Dan Schreck, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Hey, everyone. I want to tell you about some friends of ours at the Reversing Climate Change podcast. It's produced by the team at Nori, which is a carbon removal marketplace in Seattle. The show is hosted by Ross Kenyon, and he tackles all sorts of serious topics while also making room for a lot of fun. Their podcast, Reversing Climate Change, has so much content on the entrepreneurs, technologists, and policymakers who are working on carbon removal. Curious about how farms can store carbon dioxide in the soil or how new tech can separate CO2 from the air? Come hang out with the folks at Nori by searching for Reversing Climate Change in your podcast app of choice or go to nori.com, that's N-O-R-I.com for more. As we heard from Dan Schrag, making a broad impact in the energy sector is way bigger than consumers. It's going to take a massive investment from governments, NGOs, utilities, and so on. At the top of this podcast, you probably hear me saying the name Climate Investment Funds which is a group affiliated with the World Bank and Point of Transparency is a sponsor of this podcast. The climate investment funds aim to kickstart renewable energy projects around the world by investing in them, sometimes when the private sector won't. Now we're going to hear about one of these projects, a large solar farm in Morocco. This group is hoping that its investments there will contribute to reshaping the energy makeup of not just Morocco, but that entire region. We sent reporter Sebastian Buchnight to this solar power plant to learn more about the project and its broader implications. In southeast Morocco, you can stand on the edge of a cliff in a still rocky desert, look out at snow-peaked mountains in the distance, and hear this. That's the sound of power. High-voltage electricity crackling through the thick cables over your head. You'd hear it outside any power plant, but turn around and you'll see... Mirrors. More than half million mirrors. Just in Norto. I'm here in Morocco at Nor Wadazizet, the largest concentrated solar power plant in the world. Engineers Abdurazek Emrani and Nadia Ahansal work here for Mazen, the Moroccan Agency for Sustainable Energy. From this observation tower, we can see all 11 and a half square miles of Nor. That's almost half the size of Manhattan. Reflecting the sky, the mirrors are a sea of deep blue, surrounded by an expanse of crumbly red rock. It's 10 a.m. and cold, but the sun is already doing its work. Do you see the steam on the power block? That's mean that we are producing electricity. Morocco is positioning itself as a global leader in renewable energy. In 2018, the Climate Change Performance Index ranked the North African Kingdom second in the world after Sweden for its efforts to mitigate climate change. That's mostly thanks to big plans for wind, hydro, and solar energy. In 2009, King Mohammed VI announced an ambitious goal, 
build five giant solar plants around the country by 2020. And they did it. Yusuf Stitu, a project manager at Mazen. Let's say we have two major milestones, is to achieve 42% renewable energy production by end of 2020 and 52% by 2030. By end of 2018, we were at more than 36%. So we are, uh, we are running to, 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 to achieve the plan. Noor Warzazet has been online since 2018 with a capacity of 580 megawatts. That's enough electricity for around one and a half million Moroccans. Building it took five years and cost some $2.5 billion. Most of it loaned from funders like Germany's National Bank and the Climate Investment Funds, which is also a sponsor of this podcast series. In our case in Morocco, I think investing in renewables is far more interesting than investing in fossil resources. Why? Because actually we don't have fossil resources. That's not entirely true. In January, Morocco approved a new pipeline after modest gas reserves were found here. But the country's fossil fuels are scarce enough that it has to import 92% of its energy needs. Solar allows Morocco to offset some of that and reduce dependence on oil-producing countries. For us, renewable energies, with its uh, positive environmental impact and with, let's say, risk mitigation, for us is the best choice. The complex is split into four plants. Abdurazek and Nadia take me on a drive to see NOR 1. Less than 3% of the world's electricity comes from solar energy, and most of that from PV the photovoltaic panels you've likely seen on rooftops. Nor 4 uses PV. They use sunlight to convert, let's say, the photons into electrons. Let's say produce electricity directly from the panel. Nor 1, 2, and 3, on the other hand, use CSP. CSP is concentrated solar power. There are about 100 CSP plants in the world. They account for a tiny fraction of global energy. It's a relatively new technology. And the idea is to get the thermal energy from the sun to produce steam. We have the parabolic trough and we have the, the, the tower. Nor 1 and 2's U-shaped mirrors focus sunlight to heat mineral oil. Nor 3's flat mirrors heat molten salt at the top of an 820-foot tower. Those hot fluids then go to the power block. It's like Nor's digestive system a tangle of tubes, tanks, and hulking machinery. There, their heat turns water into steam. And with the high-pressure steam, it goes into the turbine and it uh, produces electricity. Coal and gas plants also use steam turbines, but they emit carbon dioxide and other pollution. Nor doesn't. Only for Norwazazat complex, it is reducing every year about uh, 900,000 tons of CO2. What makes CSP really special is storage. Without storage, solar stops working when the sun goes down. But that's when Morocco uses a lot of electricity. We can store this thermal energy into the molten salt. And after the sunset, we get back the thermal energy. That lets them make electricity for three hours after sunset. PV can't do that. But why build this here? far from big, power-hungry cities. Nadia, from Mazen, says it's because Warzazet is CSP's sweet spot. 
good irradiation. We are near to the dam. We have flat platforms. Nearly non-stop direct sunshine, flat expanses, warm weather, and a big dam nearby. Like other CSP plants, Noor's need for cleaning and cooling water is a weak point. This is a desert, after all. Nadia says Noor uses only half a percent of the dam's reservoir. The region's vital agriculture uses up to 75 percent. It is the only source of water. Climate change-induced drought is getting worse and shrinking that supply. In dry years, there's not enough to go around. Nadia says Mazen reduced its demand by switching to more expensive dry cooling for Nor 2 and 3. So we are not using a lot of water for the production. And the steam systems recycle water. It is uh, used again and again. PV uses far less water and doesn't need direct sun. But it loses efficiency and degrades quicker in extreme heat. All that aside, Noor is now providing between 3 and 4% of Morocco's electricity. And it's a first step. The fact is that electricity demand is, is increasing as well, so we will uh, we will be needing a lot of Noors. The next one, also a mix of CSP and PV, is slated for Midelt, an arid plain north of Warzizet. CSP can't efficiently be scaled down. It's got to be big, and finding enough available land is a problem. University of Kentucky researcher Karen Rignall says that the government built Nor Warzizet on tribal grazing land without fair consultation or compensation. Stitu disputes the latter claim, saying the land lacked infrastructure or agriculture and therefore wasn't valuable. It was, let's say, it was a useless land, and now it is land that is producing electricity for Morocco. Mazen is eager to focus on what has been gained rather than potentially lost. It says Nor offers opportunities to Morocco's poorest region, like working a high-tech job without leaving family. You can see, you can see my village. Just at the base of the mountain? Yes, yes. My big family is there. Or earning an ethical living, Abdurazak says. It's a job like other jobs, but it's clean. To avoid climate change or warming, it's good for me. So I contribute a little bit. If I was working with the oil companies, they say, oh, I, <laughs> I destroy the, the future of my little daughter. That's okay. I will not. Retaining workers, though, can be tough if other local industries like coal plants or mining pay better. Besides Noor, there's not many solar energy jobs in Morocco, save some small businesses and two PV panel manufacturers. This kind of project is developing the local industry and the skills of the manpower, which is very important for us. Noor isn't just Morocco's project, though. International funders require that foreign companies be involved. Six of them, from Spain, China, and Saudi Arabia, run Noor along with Mazen. Aquapower a Saudi energy developer, co-owns most of the plant. Before Mazen launched a locals-only project this year, Moroccan firms haven't had the chance to build the capital and know-how to even compete with Aqua or the Spanish engineering giant, Sener. You don't have only the big players. We had a lot of Moroccan subcontractors. Nor 3, for example, 100% of steel structure was manufactured in Morocco. The bulk of the jobs Noor created came during construction, 5,000 at its peak. 
But now, the whole complex only employs a permanent staff of about 200. In its drab control room, NOR-1 is run from a handful of computer monitors on just two desks. So it's just two people running the whole... Yes, yes. Abdullah Arjleh lives in a nearby village, Agudim. He can see NOR-3's tower from his house. He worked in construction at NOR. Now, he's a soldier. For most locals, there's no chance for permanent work at NOR, he says. But the plant has brought with it some positive changes. Now, there's a paved road. They help with school supplies and events. Things are a bit better. Not a big difference, a little bit. I said Mazen or other developers that cannot substitute to the government to do, for example, roads or schools or something, because we are in the, in the poorest region in Morocco. Still, Abdullah says he'd hope for more economic benefit. There's no logic here, he says. The biggest solar plant in the world nearby, but the electricity is the same price as before. They expect more. They expect, for example, a free access to electricity. But it's electricity for all Morocco, not for just for this region. Every Moroccan, no matter where, pays the same for power, Abdurazak says, and parliament decides the price. Mazen buys Noor's electricity from its owners, which includes itself, then sells it right into the national grid. Mega projects like NOR may be the quickest way for the state to meet solar energy goals and control the means of production. But there could be another way. If people start installing PV panels, they will get the direct benefit, not from us or from the grid, but they will get it directly from the sun. In some countries, like the United States or Jordan, people can install their own rooftop photovoltaic panels, send surplus electricity into the grid, and get money back. That's not allowed here in Morocco. Omar, who installs PV for farmers here, says that if panel owners could sell into the grid and make back their investment, everybody would want them. Families, stores, factories, everyone. Good for the people, good for the government. Stitu says a law was passed four years ago to open the grid. But still, let's say implementation is on process. They're worried that an open grid could make supply less predictable and cause occasional blackouts. Solar entrepreneurs here say it's a risk worth taking if Morocco wants to maximize its solar potential. In the future, we cannot continue to reason only by the large scale. Ultimately, a mix of the two will make Morocco more resilient. CSP is still a developing technology, and NOR has had to deal with some hiccups. Abdurzek points out that NOR 3's tower isn't glowing as usual. NOR 3, it's not, not now, it's not, it's not working now, because we have uh, maintenance operations now. The plant has been down for months after a molten salt pipe started leaking. In the first years, it's something that is uh, it's not extraordinary, but the idea was to check the full system. Otherwise, it could be too late later. Crescent Dunes, a CSP plant in Nevada, was forced offline by leaky storage tanks a year after opening. It restarted nine months later, but shut down for good last year. With North 3 offline, 
the site here is only producing three-quarters its capacity. Fortunately, it's due back online this month. Everyone's eyes are on Noor. If it succeeds, it could open the way for similar projects to grow across North Africa. For us, at least, it was the first, the first experience. Because there was no precedent to Noor was that, it was difficult to get investors, to get projects financed easily. But now with this demonstration, it makes it uh, possible for everyone that they see it, that solar power can be part of the future of energy uh, production. And that's crucial. Morocco is only responsible for around 0.2% of global carbon emissions. The U.S. emits 77 times more than Morocco. China, 165 times more. Meaning that for Noor's climate impact to really be felt, the rest of the world must follow suit. If we do this project, it's not a project to earn money, but to invest to avoid this climate change. If we are talking about protection, preserving our future, we can uh, sacrifice a lot. When I leave Noor at the end of the day, the sun is glowing orange on the horizon, and the mirrors, which follow the sun's arc, are bowed to the west, resting until it rises again. That was Sebastian Booknight, reporting from Morocco. Next week on Heat of the Moment, ideas for a greener way forward in terms of the production, consumption, and disposal of food. What we're really producing is an animal feed ingredient, and I think people can get behind uh, not taking fish out of the ocean and not taking soybeans away from humans when we need those uh, food sources. So I think the images and the logic behind that is a much stronger message than the squirminess of these little bugs. That's next week on the podcast. That's it for this episode of Heat of the Moment, which is a co-production of FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. The opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent the stance of foreign policy, the climate investment funds, or their partners. Our podcast is produced by myself and Emily Johnson, with help from Scott Andrews and Dan Haverty. Special thanks to KUER and KCPW in Salt Lake City and WABE in Atlanta for their assistance. The director of FP Studios is Rob Sachs. I'm John Sutter. Thank you for listening.